0: Uh, Have you ever seen a movie that finishes in an unexpected way, that ends with a twist to the story that completely changes the way you understand the whole movie? Uh, The Sixth Sense, uh, starring Bruce Willis as a child psychologist, that's the one that I thought of. But others are Gone Girl, starring Rosamund Pike, uh, or the Korean Oscar winner Parasite. Uh, Perhaps you can think of others. Now, I won't give away any of the endings, uh, but they make you think back over everything you've just watched and realise that nothing was what it seemed. Now, that's what's happening here in Nehemiah chapter 13. Uh, The book of Nehemiah seemed to be a good news story. It seemed to be about unity and renewed commitment. It seemed to be about widespread confession and repentance and genuine change and quality leadership. But then we come to chapter 13, and it makes us rethink everything we've assumed. Were the tears and the good intentions genuine? Was building a city wall the top priority? Was Nehemiah's leadership as wise and effective as we thought? You see, in the end, Nehemiah is not a leadership manual, or a how-to book on building programs, or a good news story with a happy ending, Nehemiah is a story of disastrous failure and rather than chapter 13 uh, 13 being the ending that we long for, we realise that Nehemiah is actually an unfinished story, it's awaiting a sequel, a resolution and it leaves us hanging. You see as good as Nehemiah is, as wise and prayerful and honourable, he can't bring about the change Israel really needs the change of their heart. The message of Nehemiah is that ultimately Israel needs a leader like Jesus. Jesus is the resolution. Jesus is the answer to the question the book of Nehemiah asks. And of course Jesus is the answer to our question. He's the resolution to our story. The supplier of our needs. The leader that we need. But that's getting a little ahead of ourselves. We pick up the story today in uh, Nehemiah chapter 10. We've seen how the people have rebuilt the city walls, but there's still that big question, what's in their hearts? Have they really repented? Yes, chapter 8 described how they felt bad, how they felt sorry and they wept. Chapter 9 describes how they've confessed their sins. But is it repentance that goes all the way to the heart and then works itself out in a changed way of living. It's it's obvious they're full of good intentions. They're committed to making practical changes. Uh, Look how chapter 9 finishes, chapter 9, verse 38. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites and our priests, are affixing their seals to it they draw up a legal document, a contract, and it's witnessed by all the leaders. They're so confident they put it in writing and the list of the names of the people who sign are there. And the rest of chapter 10 goes on to describe three special areas where they're going to be distinctive. Three New Year's resolutions. And here's the first one, chapter 10, verse 30. It's in the area of intermarriage, of their sons and daughters Marrying the sons and daughters of the surrounding nations. Because the fact is, God always told the Israelites to be separate. Right back, even before they'd entered the promised land, God warned them not to mix with the other nations who lived in that land. Because once you marry the people of the nations, the next step is that you follow their gods. And just in case you thought it was just an Old Testament issue, you're wrong. It's just as clear in the New Testament, not to do with nationalities, but God's people should only marry God's people. A Christian shouldn't marry a non Christian. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14 says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. If your faith in Jesus is a fundamental part of your life, what happens when you marry an unbeliever? Straight away, there's there's a different set of priorities. You're on different paths. We're not talking about minor issues here. It's not like marrying someone who supports a different football team or who drinks tea instead of coffee. We're talking about a whole life orientation, the whole direction you go in. Marrying someone who doesn't share that is always going to be hard work. That sort of marriage will never have the complete oneness and intimacy God designed marriage to be. God wants your best, so only marry Christians. And so, verse 30 of chapter 10, the people promise, promise number one, we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. That was one of the reasons the people were exiled, their ancestors were exiled in the first place. And they seal it, we promise. But how long will it last? Well, keep watching. Uh, Next, promise number two, chapter 10, verse 31, keeping the Sabbath. Now, that was one of the things that really marked Israel out as different. On the seventh day, everything stopped. Sunset Friday, down tools, turn everything off, lock the cash register, sit back and relax. Remember the God who made them who gave them the land. No buying, no selling, just resting. Well, that's how it was meant to be anyway. The trouble is, since they'd been back in the land, that their greed had made them totally ignore that. If there was a dollar to be made on the Sabbath, then they made it. But have a look at promise number two. Now they say it's going to be different. (coughs) Verse 31. When the neighbouring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we won't buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Once again, a written guarantee, we promise. Well, now there's one more promise and it starts in verse 32 to do with the temple. And they say, we've forgotten the temple. We built it, but then we ignored it. We didn't get around to bringing in our offerings. We let things run down a bit, but never again. We're going to bring our offerings. We're going to support the priests and the Levites. We're going to fill up the storerooms. A whole new attitude. And it's summarised in the last verse of chapter 10, those simple words, verse 39, promise number three, we will not neglect the house of our God. So there it is in writing, three promises as a mark of their commitment to follow through on their repentance. Well that's the idea anyway but the big question is will they keep their promises? Run your eye across chapter 11 and you can see the details of how they bring people in from the the surrounding towns to resettle Jerusalem. And then chapter 12 there are details of priests and Levites and a wonderful dedication service for the new walls. It's a huge celebration describes two choirs that march around the walls singing songs. And everything's terrific. And so far, it's one big happy story. Everything looking positive, with plenty to celebrate. And the first few verses of chapter 13, well, they give a nice summary. It seems like a nice place to wrap up the story. The book of Moses is read aloud. The people hear it and obey it. And in verse 3, they separate themselves as a holy people. Now that would be a great place to finish the story, wouldn't it? It would be a great resolution. Perhaps you remember earlier this year when we looked at Ezra, uh, we talked about narrative. We talked about how a good plot has an orientation and then a complication and then a resolution. That's a good story. We all love that resolution, that happy ending. Now this would be a great resolution, wouldn't it? They separate themselves as a holy people. This would be the perfect and they all lived happily ever after. There's only one problem. The story doesn't finish here. Now at the time I think Nehemiah probably thought this was going to be the ending. He gets to this point and he heaves a huge sigh of relief because as far as he can tell his job's been done. And so chapter 13, verse 6, he heads back to Babylon for a well-earned holiday to report back to the king. He's been in Jerusalem 12 years. It's the 32nd year of the reign of Artaxerxes. They say the sign of a good leader is what happens when he's not around. I wonder if that's what's going to... uh, I wonder what will happen at church this morning with me not around. Uh, what do you think happens as soon as Nehemiah's gone? Well, remember his, the three-part promise that the people made. We're not going to intermarry. We're not going to trade on the Sabbath. We're not going to neglect the house of God. Well, Nehemiah goes, uh, gets back from his little holiday in Babylon. And what does he find? verse 4, for starters, there's Eliashib, the high priest. Uh, he's in charge of the temple storerooms. The storerooms that were meant to be full to overflowing because the Israelites promised they would do that. Promise number three. Except they're empty. Last promise made, first promise broken. The storerooms are empty so Eliashib rents them out. Now you won't believe this. He's renting them out to Tobiah the Ammonite. The guy who used to stand outside the walls yelling and making threats. The guy who's been Nehemiah's enemy right from chapter 2. The guy whose nationality, Israel, was to have nothing to do with. Well, when he finds out, Nehemiah's furious. And the first thing he does is throw all of Tobiah's stuff out of the room. Chapter 13, verse 8. And then verse 9, he orders uh, that the rooms be purified and set up with the grain offerings and the incense. And then he rebukes the officials in verse 11. And the words are exactly the same as the words they wrote that they promised back in chapter 10 when they said they wouldn't do it. Nehemiah says, why is the house of God neglected when you promised you wouldn't? Uh, In verse 14, Nehemiah adds the first of three prayers in this chapter, remember me for this, O my God. Now, that's the sort of comment that perhaps at first reaction we think sounds a little self-serving and egotistical. One thing to, to balance that, I guess, is that remember we're reading over the shoulder uh, of, uh, as he writes his diary. Now, it probably fits that sort of setting quite well as he's writing his notes in uh, his, his personal record. God, I'm doing my best. Just keep that in mind uh, when... I'm called to account. But at the same time, it's a pretty sad comment really, isn't it? There's despair and resignation in that prayer. He began in chapter 1 praying for the whole nation and repenting of, of their sin on behalf of, of the nation. But now, he's done everything he can and, and in the end, well, nothing's really changed. In fact... Uh, He's the only one left. He's the only one who's living the way he should. There's one faithful Israelite. It's a little sad, really. But what about promise number two? Verse 15, in those days, says Nehemiah, I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath, bringing in corn and loading it on donkeys, together with wine grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads, bringing them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. And verse 16, men from Tyre bringing stuff into the city on the Sabbath as well and selling it and people are buying it. And Nehemiah's furious and he asks to station men at the gate to stop them doing what they'd promised not to do. And once again at the end of verse 22, another prayer from Nehemiah, remember me for this also, O my God. It's a little like a countdown isn't it three promises two down one to go and we know what's coming here it is verse 23 remember promise number one no intermarriage well it was the first one promised and it's the last one to fall verse 23 moreover in those days i saw men of judah who had married women from ashdod ammon and moab Half their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and didn't know how to speak the language of Judah. And Nehemiah's furious. Verse 26, King Solomon was ruined by intermarriages and you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to your God by marrying foreign women. And notice verse 28, the ultimate insult. One of the sons of Joidad, Son of Eliashib the high priest, there he is again, was son-in-law to Sambalat the Horonite. Do you remember him? Sambalat and Tobiah, the two great enemies of Israel, the two great opponents of Nehemiah. Tobiah is renting the storeroom in the temple. Sanballat is father-in-law of the high priest's son. These guys would do anything to stop the rebuilding of the city. They, they threatened they tried trickery, they bribed, they sent armies. And Nehemiah fought them off every time and as soon as he turns his back, as soon as he goes back to to Babylon, they sneak in by marrying off their children. Three promises made, three promises broken. These are the people who, who said they'd repented, who'd wept and mourned, who'd signed the contract, would be faithful to God, they would obey, but they've failed at every point. It's a tragedy. And so Nehemiah who at the start of the book prayed a prayer for all of Israel, well all he can do in the end is to pray for himself. That God would at least forgive him and remember him with favour. And the book ends with Nehemiah's despairing prayer in verse 31 God Remember me. I did my best. So what do we do with the book of Nehemiah? <clears throat> a good plot needs a resolution, and there just doesn't seem to be one here. In fact, if you keep reading, you, you can't even turn to anywhere else in the Old Testament to find a happy ending. Nehemiah marks the end of the historical books of the Old Testament. The history finishes about 400 BC and what you get after this are are, are things like the Psalms and the Prophets, but the history lesson stops here and it's not a happy ending, it's unresolved. It's an ending that cries for a resolution. It's an ending that leaves you with questions but not answers. Questions like, well if Israel failed, what happens now? Questions like, where will Israel find uh, a people who will really repent? Where will Israel find the sort of leader who can do what Nehemiah failed to do? Now all those questions are answered, aren't they, by Jesus. They're answered in Jesus. Jesus who, like Nehemiah, lives a unique, faithful life like Nehemiah, is the one true Israel, uh, the one true Israelite. In fact, even more than Nehemiah, of course, because Jesus was the true Israelite who never sinned. And while Nehemiah repented on behalf of his people, Jesus actually died on behalf of his people and won true forgiveness for them. And more than that, He baptises us with his Holy Spirit and gives us a new heart, a heart that is truly able to repent, a new will that is able to obey. Jesus is the resolution to the story of Nehemiah. Jesus is the resolution to Israel's story. Jesus is the resolution to our story the resolution to the story of your friends and family. Jesus is the resolution to Australia's story. He is the answer. Jesus is the leader Australia needs. Not Bill Shorten or Scott Morrison, Jesus. Most Australians don't know him. Most Australians don't even know about him, let alone follow him. Most Australians don't know enough about Jesus to reject him. Australians don't need good advice. They don't need an upright example. They don't need a clear vision. They need a saviour, a king, a shepherd. We're sometimes almost apologetic to share our faith. We're not convinced that our friends actually need Jesus. They seem quite happy. But they do need him. He is the resolution to their story, whether they know it or not. He's living water, He's the bread of life, He's the good shepherd who gives them abundant life. And He deserves their loyalty and trust because He is the leader of leaders. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the King of Kings. He is the all wise, all powerful, all loving victor over sin and death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story of Nehemiah. It's It's a great story, but in the end it fails. Nehemiah fails. In the end we fail. But we thank you for Jesus, who never failed, and who you joined us to, so that we might be forgiven. Our Heavenly Father, he is the leader Australia needs. Help us to share him, that many people might follow him. Amen.